This morning, I got a very reformed sermon for you. And that is the title of my sermon, a very reformed sermon. Somewhat pretentious, but it's true. It's a very reformed sermon, a very reformed sermon, because it begins with the doctrine of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of election and ends with covenant theology. And it's got a bit of the historia and ordo salutis mixed in to show us well how to distinguish the law from the gospel. A very reformed sermon indeed. Already in the introduction, I've used Latin. It's going to be a good morning. And if you are a reformed head, you're really going to love this sermon. And if not, I think you'll love the sermon anyway because reformed preaching is all about Jesus Christ and what Christian worth his salt doesn't want more Christ. Reformed preaching is not necessarily about the doctrine, although the doctrine is necessary. It's that the doctrine leads us to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Reformed theology is a theology of the word, by the word, about the word incarnate. And so we turn to the word this morning. And as we do, we begin as promised with the sovereignty of God. It begins in chapter 2 of 1 Kings, verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. The then there, the adverb then, reminds us of, or is established off of verse 12. And verse 12 is the announcement or the declaration of Solomon's reign. Verse 12 says, So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was thoroughly established. His kingdom was established. So after declaring the establishment of Solomon's throne, then, verse 13, then Adonijah came. And this then, this adverb, secures Solomon's throne. Solomon didn't establish the kingdom. The kingdom was already established in verse 12. Matter of fact, nobody establishes kingdoms but God. God's the one who establishes kingdoms. All kingdoms, all rulers, God establishes. Even in democracies where your vote counts, the will of the people, a country of the people, by the people, for the people, with rulers, God established. God establishes all rulers. Even in democracy, he establishes presidents. Daniel 4, 25, the prophet writes, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will. In the Bible, God is the absolute sovereign. The most high rules over the kingdom of men. The most high rules over the kingdom of God. What about my vote? What about my free will? Yes, you get what you want. You always get what you want, but God gets what he wants. Even in your wanting, God gets what he wants. God is so sovereign, he works in everything and everyone, both to will and do according to his purposes. In the end, the devil is not in the details. You've heard that, right? The devil's in the details? No, God is. God is sovereign over all. So you don't have to fear the devil. He's God's devil. Fear God. He is the one with all the power. He is the one who holds you in his hand. He is the one who can deliver you. Fear not the devil. Fear not this world, for Christ has overcome the world. God is the absolute sovereign who establishes. So why does the ESV, if you have an ESV, the ESV titles this pericope Solomon's reign established. 
Why does the authors or the translators of the, not the authors, <laughs> the translators of the ESV, why did they head this chapter, Solomon's reign established? Well, it's because the end verse, verse 46 ends, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Another adverb, so. So, because Solomon wrapped up the kingdom, he consolidated, he, uh, he, he didn't establish the kingdom, he's, he's consolidated the kingdom. He's taken out all his political threats, all his political enemies, and by taking away and destroying all his political enemies, so causal, the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. But there's one problem with this so, it's not in the original. There's no causal in the Hebrew. That's because he didn't establish his throne if there's any cause to the establishment of his throne, that cause is Yahweh. If there's any cause to the establishment of Yahweh's kingdom and Yahweh's man, it's Yahweh. What Solomon does in this text is he, he secured his kingdom. He secured his kingdom from political threats, conspiracies, and coups. He's consolidated his reign. He's making it all, he's bringing all of Israel under his reign. He's tying up political loose ends. He's securing his kingdom, yet his security was never in question in the grand scheme of things. God promised him the throne. It was certain. He would certainly have the throne. And in that certainty, God used Solomon to achieve his, his purposes. That is, God uses sinful men to do his will. He uses sinful men to do his pleasure, to do his purposes. And I'm very thankful for that because I want him to use me. <laughs> I want God to use me. You see, we don't sin on an empty timeline. We don't sin on an empty linear timeline, a linear timeline, whereas our sin in one point affects our future in such a way that we have to fear our future, that we have to fear that moment by moment is progressing because of our sins to our destruction and the destruction of our neighbors. No, we don't believe that. We don't believe that there's an, an empty, linear timeline. The timeline is filled with God's grace. And God is bending time, always bending and shaping time for our good, always moving heaven and earth for our blessings and our comfort and our peace. And God loves to bend time. God loves to bend hearts. He's bending your heart. For his glory. He's bending your heart and shaping you. The Father is shaping you after the image of his Son, that you would do his will, bending us toward his glory. So in the end, you don't fear your own sin, for God's grace is greater than all your sin. And forget about your shame. Seriously, in Christ, forget about your shame. Paul did. Paul says that he forgot what lies behind. He has forgotten already what lies behind, and he strains forward to what lies ahead. Always in the midst of your sin and shame, repent of it and forget about it. <laughs> and strain forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead is the grace and power of our God. So again, sovereignty of God. Then Azah, we're back to that adverb in verse 13, all of that, oh, for one adverb. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. 
The queen asks him if he comes in peace because the throne's not secure. <laughs> it's not secure. She wouldn't have had to ask, are you coming peacefully? And then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. You know, and he waxes eloquently how the kingdom belongs now to Solomon, and the Lord gave it to Solomon. And then he says, I ask, please ask, verse 17, do not refuse me to give me a Bashag the Shunammite for my wife. Now, Adonijah here is seeking to steal back. He didn't come peacefully. He's seeking to steal back the queen. Excuse me. He's seeking to steal back the throne through the king's harem. If he can have, in, in the ancient world, to possess one of the king's harems gave you a right to the throne, especially as a son and the oldest son, if the oldest son could, could secure one of his concubines, he could easily take back the throne. He could claim the throne. He was the primogeniture. He had the right of the eldest son. He also, we learn, has the Israel's general Joab on his side. He has Israel's priest on his side. All he needs is this one little piece a Bashai, a concubine, and he could take back the throne. And so now we see why Solomon in this text is consolidating his throne. It wasn't very secure. And Abashai said, or excuse me, Bathsheba, Bathsheba the mother of Solomon said, very well, I will speak to you for the king. Now why did she agree to such a conspiracy? Is she naive? Was Bathsheba naive agreeing to this conspiracy, or was she cunning? Did she agree because she knew it would lead to Adonijah's death and her safety? It's very interesting when she goes and speaks to, to, this, to her son. She rose and she goes and she asks for this one small request. And then she says, verse 21, she says, Let Abashag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah. And then she adds something, your brother, as his wife. You know, I don't think she's naive. I think she's political. Oh, your brother came calling. You know, your brother, the one who has a right to the throne, and he's asking for one of your father's concubines. I don't think she's naive. I think she's a good politician. What we see in this text and what we're going to see over and over again is what, we, what is called real politic. Real politic. Have you heard of this word? It's a German word, real politic. It ends with a K, not a C. Real politic. It's a German word meaning practical politics. I looked it up. Henry Kissinger, he's known for the father of real politic. It means winning at all costs. Do whatever it takes to secure your position, even if it means taking out your husband's son. Real politic is a system of politics without moral considerations. Real politics is politics without ideological or moral considerations. And Solomon, we're going to see, Solomon was really good at real politics. Verse 24, he says, Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death. So Solomon issued his ex execution and I love how he issues it. He issues it very religious, very religiously. He's a pious executioner. This is not a political hit job. This is religion. And if we recall in the previous story, David charged Solomon to take out his political enemies. David said, take out the political enemies. Use your wisdom. 
that is under the guise of religion and morality, put them to death. And Solomon just does just that. But ironically, and remember Hebrew loves irony, the first casualty of Solomon was someone David never mentioned. Someone David did not want dead. One of his own sons. But that's real politic. There's going to be death. And he's put to death. And with the death of Adonijah, uh, I'm always missing that name. Adonijah, 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 the dominoes begin to fall. So he says, so the king, verse 25, King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and said, strike him down, and he died. And to Abithar the priest, now the dominoes are all falling. And to Abithar the priest, the king said, go to Anathoth, Anathoth, to your estate, for, your, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord, because you served my father, and because you shared in my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abathar from being priest of the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Now the priest is not put to death because he served the Lord and he served David. He served him faithfully, but he was deposed. And in his disposition, we learn he fulfilled a prophecy, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 2, that there would not be a son left to the house of Eli. Now, the narrator reminds us of this oath because the narrator in Kings is very interested in promise and fulfillment. We are going to see over and over again that the narrator, that the book of Kings is very interested in promise and fulfillment because the narrator is very interested in the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant has promises, conditions, stipulations with promises, Promise and fulfillment. Fulfill these stipulations, fulfill these covenants, and the promise will be obedience leads to life, disobedience leads to death. So the Davidic covenant is conditional. It's conditioned on the king's obedience. Obedience leads to life, disobedience leads to death. And this Davidic covenant itself is a continuation of the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant, which had the same stipulations, which itself is a continuation of the covenant of works which had conditions in the garden, Adam and Eve were to obey the Lord. Do this and live. Long life in the land, disobedience, death. Perfect obedience is what God commands in these conditions, in the Davidic, the Mosaic, the covenant of works. And that's because God is not interested in anything but perfection because he is holy. Holy God. Fear God and trust Christ, for he is our obedience. Fear God and trust Christ, for he is our perfection. Christ is our life. Christ is our holiness, as we will see in a moment. But first, verse 28, more dominoes are about to fall. When the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, notice that clause there. I think the narrator put that clause in there to remind us that he was always faithful. The only slip-up Joab had with David was picking the wrong son. It really wasn't his fault. He just went with the eldest. So Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. Now, the reason he caught hold of the horns of the altar is because Torah forbids the killing of anyone 
in that holy place. So it became an ancient practice in this day to go seek asylum in the tent of meeting because the law said you can't kill in this place. So it became a safe haven, a place to, to flee, and as long as you were there, you would not die. Joab knows what's going on. He knows how politics works. Killing political threats secured thrones. He sees the dominoes. He knows how kingdoms are secured. You've got to take out all political threats. He sided with the wrong king. He knows it's, it's his time. That's how kingdoms are established. Perhaps even presidencies. And it's really hap- helpful when your political enemies commit suicide. That's a nice one. That's, uh, that's a really easy one. <laughs> but Joab, of course, um, was a political enemy. And if you were to ask Jerusalem, they would say, oh, what's about to happen has nothing to do with politics. This is all religion. This is all morality. And so when the king was told, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord. And behold, he's beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tent of the Lord and said to, said to him, the king commands you to come out. Now, if you notice, the king never commanded him to tell him to come out. That's not the piety of Solomon That's Benaiah's piety. You see, Benaiah knows the law. Benaiah knows he cannot go out in there and strike him down. So Joab was saved, and Benaiah was reluctant to kill him out of reverence for the law in this holy place. And so he calls him out. He said, he won't. I will die here. Benaiah will not let that happen. Then Benaiah brought the king, so he goes back to the word. So Benaiah, instead of striking him down, sends word back to Joab. Hey, he's in the holy place. I can't go in there. It's Torah. Torah obedience, right? We're all about the letter of the law here. You're the one, you know, preaching morality and religion. We got to obey the law. And, of course, Joab said, no, strike him down. Strike him down. And in ordering his execution beside the altar... Solomon dishonors the word of the Lord. He's really dishonoring Yahweh's worship, which we know Yahweh takes very, very seriously his worship and his commandments. So while showing he was a humble servant of the law, I'm just fulfilling law. This is all religion, not politics. Don't look over here, not politics. Religion. He broke the law because this was not religion. This is politics. I've often noticed those who flaunt their religion tend to be the most via, the grossest violators of God's law. I've actually found it that those who are legal, the legalists are usually the ones who are the grossest violators of God's law. They want to yoke you to a law they themselves cannot keep and even break while placing you under it. You see, the problem with works righteousness is our work. Your work is sinful, stained, dirty rags. And God, yes, God accepts the Christian's good works. But know this, God accepts Christian works only by grace. Because even as a Christian, your good works are still sinful. And so even as a Christian, you need the blood of Christ to purify the gifts you offer to the Lord turns out the gospels are justification and our sanctification turns out the gospels are glory it turns out the only power of god is the gospel 
And so the gospel is our life, and it is a life that leads to obedience because it is the gospel that not only redeems you, it's the gospel that renews you. You're renewed to live for the Lord by the gospel, shaped into the image of the Son by the Son. We need Christ. We need gospel. But that's not what we're getting here. This is all politics. Verse 32, the Lord, he says, will bring, now he waxes on religiously, the Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood be on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. Job was not killed because of Solomon's overwhelming uh, desire to clear David's house of blood guilt. He's killed because of his potential threat. This is not religion. This is real politic. He's using religion. These men were not any better than, than, than Joab. He's just interpreting. He's interpreting. He's making it all morality. He's, he's dressing up real politic, making it look like something it's not. Looking at Making, using religion to dress up real politic to present it as something better than it's not. And then he kills Joab. So he offers, he tells Benaiah just to go strike him down. And in the place of striking him down, he, 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 in the place of uh, uh, Joab, he presents Benaiah, the son of Jehoiah, as the officer in his place, the commander. And then he puts Zadok the priest in the place of Abathar. All the loose ends are being tied up. And there's one domino left. Verse 36, then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day that you go out, and notice this, the day that you go out, so he says, now notice here, he says, go dwell in Jerusalem, do not go out from there to any place whatever. But then he further stipulates, here's the command, for on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, then you will die. Know for certain you'll die. If you leave and cross the brook Kidron, you will die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said, we'll do this. Let's do this. So he goes and he moves there and he lives there for a few years. But then after a couple of years, a couple of his servants uh, leave and he goes after them. And I notice how as soon as he goes after him, David finds out, which means he has eyes on Shimei the whole time. He has his eyes just waiting for Shimei to go and, and make a false move. All eyes, and he catches him. Verse 41, and when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you saying? Now, if you read the text, he didn't make him swear by the Lord. Solomon's adding. He's adding to it. He's adding to the word. Didn't I say, we swear in saying no for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever you shall die, he's reinterpreting the command. Because if you look at the geography, Shimei actually didn't cross the brook Kidron. He was actually faithful in returning his servants to Gath, from Gath. But the letter of the law and he was so concerned with the letter of the law with Joab. But now when justice is at stake and life is at stake, he just simply becomes a reinterpreter of his own law and has Shimmy put to death. Because this, none of this is religious. This is just politics. 
And then Solomon's final words to Shimei reveal what it's really all about. Verse 44, then the king also said to Shimei, you know in your own heart all the harm you did to David, my father. That's what it's really all about. You cursed my father. That's the harm he did. He makes it sound like all this harm you did to my dad. All he did was say, cursed are you. (laughs) And he was cursed. He just committed adultery and murdered And all he did was curse, but all this harm you did to my poor little father. He was such a victim of you, Shimmy, shouting and throwing rocks. Oh, those rocks hurt. I'm sure a rock didn't even hit him. You know in all your heart what you did to my father, so the Lord, and now it becomes, so the Lord will bring back your head, will bring harm on your head. This was personal vengeance, which mixed well with the pursuit of political dynasties. And then all the loose ends were tied. Verse 46, then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. It was just established. It is established. David commanded Solomon to be a wise king. David commanded his son to bring down the heads of his political enemies, and Solomon proved to be the guy, wise but not godly wisdom. This is craftiness. It's real politic made to look religious. So we are only two chapters in the first Kings. We've only covered two chapters in first Kings, and all we've seen so far is rivalries, coups, conspiracies, infighting, cover-up, and murder. Think about it. This is the kingdom of God, and all we've seen is sin. Just gross sin, all the way at the top. What we are witnessing is the part of the Christian canon that leads us to Christ. This is covenant theology. You see, friends, covenant theology begins with the covenant of works. And the covenant of works is a conditional covenant. The covenant of works given to Adam and Eve in the garden, do this and you will live. Do this and you shall live. Don't do this and the implication... If the implication is eternal life, if you do this, the implication, or if the if the command, the explicit command is eternal life, the implication is death, eternal death. And we know that's what happens. Adam and Eve failed the covenant of works, were kicked out, exiled out of the garden, condemned, exiled, and died. Obedience would have earned life, paradise. They broke the covenant, condemned, exiled, and died. And the fruit of their sin was fracture. Frac- Fractricide, the first killing in the history of one's brother. 1 Kings 2 is just a continuation of that story. It's just a continuation of the story in in the garden. And it's our story. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. That's our story. None righteous. No, not one. 1 Kings is the progress of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, which is a republication of the covenant of works. And like Adam, Israel's king failed to meet the conditions. And the nation was exiled, just like Adam and Eve. The kings will not meet the conditions of the Davidic covenant. And Israel will be exiled, condemned, and they will die. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same story. Different verse. But there's also another covenant operating at the same time in this story. 
And we see it in the election of the younger son over the oldest. Solomon, like Isaac and Jacob, was not better than, a, than Adonijah. We see that he's not better. He's not morally better than Adonijah. It's election because, like Isaac and Jacob, Solomon had done nothing either good or bad. It's in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. This is the grace of election. And the doctrine of election is what makes salvation completely gracious, completely unconditional. You did not elect yourself. It's the grace of the Abrahamic covenant. God didn't bless David or his house because of their faithfulness. It was all God's faithfulness. So even the conditions of the Davidic covenant Obedience leads to life, was fulfilled unconditionally through David's true and righteous son, Jesus Christ, whom Paul says was born of a woman under the law. Born of a woman, daughter of whom? Eve. The daughter of Eve gave birth to the Son of God, born under the law. Born under the same conditions as Adam, so that he might be the true Adam born under the Mosaic covenant that he might be the true Israel, the righteous one of God, born under the Davidic covenant that he might be the true and righteous king. Christ secured the kingdom of God by his righteousness, and Christ established it by overcoming death. And he killed no one like Solomon to secure it. But he gave his own life. He gave his own life, and all you have to do, dear Christian, is simply believe. And by faith, you are a child of God. By faith, the promises of the covenant of grace are yours. One with Christ, no more condemnation. Members of the covenant of grace, a child of God, no matter your sin or your sinful nature, for Christ has fulfilled the conditions of the covenant. So in Christ, no more condemnation. And that's how I will end my sermon. In Christ, there's no more condemnation. And that's what makes for a very reformed sermon. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.